Hey folks, just a quick reminder that Jim and I are doing a live event in Walt Disney World November 10th through the 13th. You can find more information at our travel partner's website, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. We plan to spend those couple of days walking through the parks and telling stories, and that's pretty much how we're going to spend our evenings too, except at a bar. And Pandora will be open, we will walk through it, we will all talk about blue people and even bluer drinks. Visit storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish to join us. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with me, Len Testa. Today, we've decided to talk a little bit about Pixar and the history of Pixar in the Disney theme parks. In order to do that, we have to tell the story of Pixar. And in order to do that, we have to bring in one Mr. Jim L. Jim, how's it going? Reasonably well, yourself? I am not bad at all. Okay. So, Jim, we know that Pixar has a couple of new attractions in the park. We've seen at Disney's Hollywood Studios the evening show called Music of Pixar Live. Mm-hmm. Where they bring in an orchestra and they play music from various soundtracks while, I guess, uh, film clips are playing in the background. And the interesting thing for me about this is this is a 45-minute show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that, presented three times a night in the Beauty and the Beast Theater off of Sunset. It is. It's an interesting entertainment alternative to bring in, but very shortly, Disney Hollywood Studios is going to be sort of your go-to place for Pixar. I guess in the long range, it makes sense. We know that Disney and Pixar got together over films, but why don't you walk us through the, the history of that? When did it all begin? Well, uh, realistically, it began pre-1990. John Lasseter was one of the original students in Disney's CalArts program, and came to the studio as an excitable young man who was going to change animation and then kind of came up against a company that wasn't exactly ready to change at that point. He was a guy who wanted Disney to do new stuff. And in fact, he got the computer animation bug by watching the folks who were working on Tron. In fact, he pitched the idea to Disney about doing a full CG film called the Brave Little Toaster, and the, the studio nodded and smiled and said, you're fired. Wow. <laughs> the whole attitude at Disney at that point was, if we make this computer animated feature, will it cost less than doing hand-drawn? And at that point, John was like, well, no, it, it will cost more, but it will be the first into the space, and the cost will go down with the next couple of films. And no, that was the wrong answer at that time at Disney. They were just still trying to keep the doors open at feature animation. So John was let go, but within weeks got picked up by the folks who were working with Steve Jobs on what he was doing with Renderman, and they were trying to sell this operating system, and John figured that, well, the easiest way to sell it is to make movies showing what it could do. So that's where Andre and Wally B came from and all those Pixar shorts. That's really what this was about. Disney was watching shorts like Tin Toy and Wally's Dream. And it was just one of these things where it's like, we want into that. We should get this guy back. And they kept trying to offer him, we'll come here and direct a film. And he was like, well, no, I got these guys I work with at Pixar. I don't want to leave here. I've got a good team. Why don't you let us make a movie for you? So how long did this take? How long did did it go from firing to we want you back? Um, well, I want to say John was let go, 83, 84, and wow. okay. they didn't sign the contract till July of 1991 to do the first, uh, well, again, it was a three-picture deal. 
really, this only came about because of another CalArts graduate, and that was Tim Burton. Tim Burton, a weird little side note to this story. Tim Burton had... You said, you said Tim Burton and weird little side note in the same sentence as if people expected something different. Okay, <laughs> okay go ahead. Anyway, uh, Tim Burton, a kid who came out of the CalArts program, who was doing great work at Disney, and they just didn't know what to do with him. So they let him get away, and he ends up directing Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice and Batman in rapid succession. And suddenly Disney was like, oh my God, we let the genius go. About the same time, Burton remembers a thing that he wrote at Disney called The Nightmare Before Christmas that he was originally trying to convince that studio to do as a half hour long uh, holiday special. And so he comes back to Disney and it's like, will you give me this idea back so I can develop it on my own? Mm -hmm. And Disney's like, (laughs) okay, here's what we're going to (laughs) do. You wrote it while you're here. We own it, but we will be happy to make it with you. So they actually set up a separate production company, Skellington Productions, to make Nightmare Before Christmas. And that's actually how the Pixar deal was made because there was now precedent that Disney would do an animated feature with an outside company. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, this will be like the deal we've made with Burton. They signed a deal, six Pixar films total for Disney. In exchange though, to nail home that this is going to be a permanent arrangement, Disney agrees to buy a million shares of Pixar stock, which effectively gives it 5% of the studio. Because Disney bought in, they wanted Pixar to buy in and to assume some of the risks. So from this point going forward, Pixar wanted 50% of the profits for the films it worked on. So Disney says, fine, you then have to pay 50% of the development costs. We're going to split it right down the middle. For a lot of people, the smartest part of this deal was what Steve Jobs then negotiated, that going forward, starting with A Bug's Life, Mm -hmm. whenever the name Disney would appear, Pixar would appear next to it in the exact same size type. Oh, interesting. So this is a 50-50-50 deal. That's it, exactly. If these films are successful going forward, we want to build our brand. Up until this point, uh, we're talking now going into the 97, you've got the Disney company working on Animal Kingdom, and they're doing a show inside of the Tree of Life that's built around the Lion King characters. But because part of the deal with Pixar was that you'll start using our characters in the parks, Eisner's, well, let's see, this one's inside the tree, bugs live inside of trees, why don't we do something that keyed off of that Bugs Life movie you guys are making for us. And Pixar's like, well, that's great, but we haven't finished making the movie and we don't have the people to spare to work on this. So what ends up happening is that Disney has to reach out to a third party, Rhythm and Hughes, to actually make the It's a Tough to Be a Bug 3D movie. And I've talked with the guys who worked on that and they said it was honestly the most frustrating project on the planet because they could never get the model sheets. I was going to say, yeah, how, how do you get the models? <laughs> yeah, that's like literally question number one. How do you get the models for the, well, for the that, characters? That's why there are only really two characters that you recognize from that movie. You've got Flick and you've got Hopper. Hopper, that was one of the most sophisticated audio animatronic figures up until that time. I mean, when you think about Animal Kingdom opens April 22nd, 1998. 
Well, Bugs Life doesn't open in theaters till November of that year. Now, speaking of November of 1998, that was when we got our first real Toy Story ride. Though, continuing a theme we'll see throughout this period, they didn't build an actual ride ride. They took the old Take Flight building, knocked down all the sets, and created Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin, which actually turned out to be a hit attraction. That's one of the reasons it, oh, yeah. it's... It's walked around the world. Yeah, I mean, 20 years later, it's still very popular. You get this theme of recycling when it comes to Pixar. I mean, for example, we jump ahead to February 2001 when DCA opens in California, and they grab It's Tough to Be a Bug, sort of shoehorn that in to the California story. I mean, you may remember that the original conceit was... They had set up an area at that theme park called Bountiful Valley Farms, which celebrated the farmland much the tradition of Eisner, it's like, well, trees have bugs. Well, well farms have bugs, don't they? Farms have bugs, yeah. Farms are integral to bugs. Bees, pollen. We're there pollinators. We <laughs> <laughs> just shoehorn that in there. But of course, DCA kind of stumbles out of the gate. In fact, the very first attraction that closes at that park, Superstar Limo in January of 2002. I mean, the place has been barely open 11 months at this point. They're shuttering that attraction. Just a month later, though, here's Cynthia Harris, then president of Disneyland, announcing that clearly this park needs some stuff. And so we're going to take It's Tough to be a Bug and use that as the jumping off point for a whole new land, the Flicks Fun Fair, which will be located in a bug's land. And to say that project was rushed along, Len, it took them three years and four months to open Avatar. A Bug's Land opened in seven months. It kind of looks like it, though. Well, I mean, it's, it is what we would say lightly themed in the yeah, industry. But again, it did what it was supposed to. It gave some more kid-friendly elements to that park. This is sort of the first new Pixar stuff. Nothing being recycled, an actual land land. And that opens in October of 2002. Nobody quite knows if what the next hit from Pixar is going to be, and it actually shows up in May of the following year with Finding Nemo. And, and as we'll see shortly, that one, given the huge box office that it racked up, immediately came to the attention of Imagineering, and they began to look for ways to shoehorn it in everywhere. The downside is that May 2003, Nemo opens. January of 2004, Steve Jobs announces that he's ending negotiations with Disney. And he's going to take Pixar somewhere else. I forgot about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it was a really tense time. In fact, Disney announced, well, fine, you know, we own these six movies that you guys made. So they started up what was known as Circle 7 Studios. And they were going to produce sequels not only to Finding Nemo. I've actually read the the script to the Monsters, Inc. follow-up that they were going to create. And it was actually really, really good. What was the dispute between Pixar and Disney? Some of it was control during this same period. If you look at things like Lilo and Stitch or Treasure Planet or, you know, the Disney's... (laughs) Please look at Treasure Planet, please. Disney's in a really tough spot about this time. And it's not just Pixar that's causing the problem. You have things like Shrek... People forget that they came out the month before Atlantis, The Lost Continent, 
and it completely kicked its ass at the box office. Likewise, Ice Age from Blue Sky. I mean, Disney had competition coming at it from all angles. And meanwhile, here's Pixar just producing this endless series of films that really connect with audiences and getting tremendous response from critics. In November 2004, we've got Incredibles coming through the door, and everyone's talking about why can't the other studios make a superhero movie like this? November that same year, 2004, we get the first version of Turtle Talk. Yeah. 2005, that shows up at California Adventure. And speaking of which, back to California Adventure, we've got our closed Superstar Limo ride, which eventually the Imagineers look at, and it's like, wait a minute, Monsters, Inc., maybe? And they step back into that attraction, and you keep the track in place, you keep the vehicles in place, you knock down every wall in the building, and then you take whichever animatronic figures you have. And remember, they weren't really animatronics, they were more minimatronics, and you make them members of the Child Detection Agency. It always cracks me up to go through that thing and see the... Drew Carey version of the figure who stood on Hollywood Boulevard and was supposedly selling you maps to the Hollywood stars' homes, the figure would fan out a handful of brochures. Same thing, when it came time to use that same figure in in, in the Monsters, Inc., Mike and Sully to the rescue, same thing. A CDA guy turns to you and it's like, hi, can we show you brochures about how dangerous children are? (laughs) It is minimal retheming. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But the crucial moment here really comes in September of 2005. This is when two events, Michael Eisner, who was the one who really was brawling with Steve Jobs. And this was all about control and two very powerful men who neither of whom were willing to back down. Michael Eisner leaves the company September 30th of 2005, steps down as CEO, and Iger replaces him. And Bob Iger, just three weeks previous, had been at the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland, standing on their Main Street USA watching the opening day parade. And Bob couldn't help but notice that as all of the parade floats were going by, the Pixar characters were getting this huge reaction from the people you know, standing along Main Street. And the Disney characters did get this nice, tepid, polite applause. And it's just sort of like, the golf okay. Club. Yeah, that's just like, clearly, if I'm going to build a future for this company... I have to reach out to Pixar. And so that's what he did. He reached out to Jobs. And Disney, in order to get Pixar to keep them on the the ranch, so to speak, $7.4 billion in 2006. I mean, a huge, huge amount of money. Almost twice as much as they paid for Star Wars. Yeah. But at the same time, one of the things that they put on the table is, okay, from this point forward, you're an active partner when it comes to Imagineering. And John Lasseter just took this and ran with it. Prior to them bringing the $7.4 billion deal, there had been 12 attractions made for the Disney parks that were themed around Pixar properties. Mm -hmm. Over the next, and we're talking from January of 2006 to today, 11 years, 45 attractions around. Holy cow. Yeah. It wasn't just limiting them to, okay, rides. I mean, for example, we got the Finding Nemo, the musical, and right on the heels of this, we get Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor, which is kind of a stretch for Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom. I have this feeling that Tomorrowland is the land that catches all the attractions that, that don't have a fit in any other land. 
Well, that's probably very true. It now becomes Pixar 24-7. I mean, the submarine voyage at Disneyland that closed in 1998 finally yeah. comes back online, but now it's the Finding Nemo submarine Sub- voyage. Yeah. And even the cruise line, you know, 2008, we get Toy Story the musical. It's actually not a, not a bad show. Didn't it shut down in like 2016? Or? Yeah, I, think they've, uh, I think they've replaced it with Frozen. I believe they have. Which is, a, yep. which is the best, I think, the best show on the cruise line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now you see things like Mickey Avenue becomes Pixar Place. Mm-hmm. They even go so far as to get the multicolored brick from the old Del Monte plant that the Pixar Emeryville campus is built out of. And that coloration, along with the signage and everything, is placed there on Pixar Place. Hugely popular. It's the, second, uh, it's the uh, most popular ride in Walt Disney World. Yeah, and because the Imagineers are really trying to make John Lasseter happy because he's kind of their new creative de facto boss, you see the Living Creature Initiative stuff, like the Wally that began rolling around the parks in June of 2008. Uh, that one got pulled off of the table mostly because of safety concerns. I mean, that thing weighed over 800 pounds, and as much as people enjoy interacting with it, Disney's lawyers were just terrified of it rolling over some child's foot. In March of 2009, we got the Remy, the Chefs de France in Epcot. I don't know why they didn't keep that around. I think Ratatouille is the best Pixar movie. If you actually look at the properties that have showed up in the parks, Mm -hmm. between Toy Story, Cars, Monsters, Inc., but then after that, it's if you talk with theme park fans, they're like, where are the Incredibles rides? Exactly. We're the, my two favorite Pixar movies are the Incredibles and Ratatouille and not really anything. But you think Ratatouille, because it's food-based and the way that Disney pushes food, mm-hmm. you would think that that would have been one of the first things that they did and kept around. Most of these decisions are keying off of the highest grossing Pixar films. In fact, just to circle back to A Bug's Life, the very fact that if you look at the overall chart, Mm-hmm. for what's the highest grossing Pixar films. Out of the 17 films, A Bug's Life is 16. You know, the only A Good Dinosaur. So how does it... A Good Dinosaur, I forgot about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Those of you who love Flick's Funfair at Bug's Land at DCA, that's really, really, really in danger of being swallowed by the Marvel superhero Marvel. land. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be. I mean, if you look at the amount of the value of that land and where they could really expand to. I mean, those are fine attractions for kids, yep. but the kids that watch those films now have kids of their own. Mm-hmm. And like I said, if it's 16th or 17th and the, if it's in the bottom half of the earnings, then they can do so much more with the Marvel stuff. You look at Disneyland yeah, and it has attractions that are based on movies that frankly nobody watches anymore. I mean, you, you, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. If you're bringing a kid today in, it's like, well, who is Mr. Toad? That's true. I mean, I think when Hannah went to the, when I took Hannah to Disneyland, she had never seen, mm-hmm. you know, Peter Pan or Snow White or Alice in Wonderland. Wow. Okay. I, I know. I know, right? What a wonderful Disney parent you are, Len. <laughs> you're like <laughs> I, do, I like the theme parks. I don't like the films. He said that, folks, not me. I know, right? <laughs> Anyway, during this period, because Monsters had done so well, we'd seen the Monsters, Inc., Mike and Sully to the rescue go into DCA, but Mm -hmm. as part of this Pixar Plays project, the next thing that was supposed to go in was that Monsters, Inc. inverted coaster. I can still remember the day when the phone rang off the hook here from friends who work third shift at Walt Disney World who had seen the art and, hey, this thing is coming. And, of course, then we had the financial correction in the fall of 2008, and this thing just fell off the table. But a lot of stuff fell off the table during this period. I mean, it was the announcement that Toy Story the Musical was going to go into the Hyperion Theater at DCA to replace Aladdin the Musical. Remember that? Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. And, and, and then it didn't. And then Aladdin ran for like seven more years. Yeah. It was just a <laughs> very strange situation. Yeah, this is the period we got like all of those announcements about uh, the redevelopment of downtown Disney that never happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, just uh, like, Hyperion Wars. Just went away. Yeah. yeah. Realistically, those of us who have been covering Disney for a lot of years, that's just kind of the turf. But anyway, Pixar's march continues. 2012, we see the Nemo-themed wing opened at Art of Animation. That was really taking that abandoned portion of Pop Century, thing that had been partially built, and repurposing that. And it turned out to really, really be a popular resort. Oh, yeah. And half of the four themed areas are Mm -hmm. Pixar, right? That's uh, exactly. In terms of the value resorts, the theming Mm -hmm. that Disney did with... The Cars stuff over at of Animation, I think, is the most realized of all of the, the different environments. It looks like the desert southwest. Oh, totally. But remember, yeah. one of the reasons that we get that wonderful-looking Cars-themed area at the Art of Animation is because just a week prior to that opening, Cars Land opens at Disney's California Adventure. Right. A huge smash. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I have to share this story. So how big do you suppose Pandora, the world of Avatar, is, Len? Uh, 15, 20 acres? Actually, just 12. 12, okay. All right, fair enough. Okay, now, care to guess how big Cars Land is? Eight? 12. They're both the same size, really? They are uh, both Pandora the same. Pandora seems so much bigger. By the way, did you see the, did you see the news last week that uh, Disney's finally agreed to paint the back half of Cars Land? In California, so residents looking into it don't see the infrastructure. Isn't that interesting? Wow. However many years later, yeah. Wow, because I I just came across this amazing little weird side story about, you know how they have the Cadillac Range there, the the, the faux mountain range? The level of detail there is kind of insane. The actual mountains in the Cadillac Mountain Range are all modeled after fins on actual Cadillac cars. They're the cars that go from 1957 to 1962, and each of them evidently is as close as a replica to that year's fin on a Cadillac as it can be. In rock work. That's fantastic. In rock work, which I just think is nuts. Uh-huh. Oh, so speaking of cars, Jim, mm-hmm. I had this thought the other night. So, mm-hmm. You know, like just before you, you go off to sleep, yep. you think about the Pixar universe and possible uh, implications of the Pixar universe. Why are there door handles on the cars <laughs> in the Pixar universe? Well, I had this explained to me once. Well, you know, Doc Hudson is a doctor. It's like, well, yeah. Well, how's he get inside his patients to check them out? It's like, oh, door handles, trunks, got it. Okay. <laughs> that was the explanation I was given by somebody who actually worked on the movies. Oh, oh, oh. The story actually comes from Mike Pereza, who was lucky enough to appear with it at the Dayton Disney Anna last month. But okay. Mike actually worked on Cars Land. In fact, he designed Mater's Junkard Jamboree. I mean, he was very much involved with this. And he, over the course of this event, showed some art from an attraction he pitched to Disney, which was going to be based on the Cars spinoff series that was done by Disney Toon Studios, Planes. Planes. Oh, Jesus. But he drew this amazing piece of art where basically you are in a plane traveling along a roller coaster track, and you're going to basically do the equivalent of stunt flying. There's a patent for this. We, we never talked about it in our Unbuilt Disney thing. It is, it is an amazing patent. You're essentially, you, you spiral around the track. 
Yes, you did. And, oh, and, it was crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Mike designs it, and he hands it to his boss at Imagineering and says, you understand that we can't actually build this. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that that someone will die, you know, just like. <laughs> but evidently, the idea literally catches fire in Imagineering, and so Mike goes into like this staff party that they're holding for for Lasseter at one point. And he mm. looks and here's the painting, is it? And it's a beautiful painting, but they've made it into this giant wall hanging. It gets like, oh crap! And then he looks, and here on the table in front of the the giant wall hanging is a model of the attraction. Well, they, yeah, they patented it. I mean, they they. They spent the money on a patent for it. It's but at the party, he's like, "You understand, people will die. We can't do that. Metal can't do this." <laughs> and, you know, and so for two months, he frets about this because, like, "Oh my god, I'm going to kill children." And then, like t- <laughs> two months later, he gets a call, and it's just sort of like, "All right, Mike, we, I'm, we're sorry. We actually handed it to the safety people, and they came back and said that this wouldn't work. It would kill people." And he's like, <laughs> Gee. Like, "Oh, that's too bad." <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. No, I saw the the patent. And the, one of the interesting things about the ride was that in order to emphasize the feeling of air going over you mm-hmm. as you're flying, it would have had spinning propellers. Yes, yes. And you're traveling around in circles as you're going along a metal roller coaster rail. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess that it could have rained a broken glass on you to make it a little less safe. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Yes, you hand everybody a complimentary razor blade to chew as they, they continue along the right track. Yes. So I actually found the patent when I was prepping for our Unbuilt Disney Talks, and it, we, just, we just never got to ride to it, but there's a couple of other really interesting patents out there. We'll, we'll have to do uh, one last wrap-up show for that. I agree. And speaking of wrapping things up, I mean, when you think about just the last year or so between adding the third track for Toy Story Mania at Disney Hollywood Studios and the Toy Story Hotel that just opened at Shanghai or getting back to the recycling thing, Storm Rider has now become Nemo and Friends Sea Rider. I mean, this just continues to chug on. I cannot help but read things into, for example, them just this week changing out the films at at Epcot. At Pixar, uh, yeah, short, short films. Yeah, the, the Disney Pixar thing. Getting people used to, okay, you're going to see movies in this space. The music of Pixar Live. Like we were saying at the top of the, the show, when the Toy Story Playland opens at Disney Hollywood Studios in <laughs> you know, get ready. You know, that pretty much the same time we get a Toy Story Playland opening at Shanghai. That's going to be their first new land. Oh, interesting. Lest I forget that we have Toy Story 4 out there looming in the bushes, soon to make its way into theaters. So That's true. I'm going to get in trouble for telling this story. But basically, Disney is relying very, very heavily on Pixar right now to drive the parks, to drive retail. But up in Emeryville, there's a belief that Pixar needs to reinvent itself. Taking into consideration the financials that other studios, I mean, for example, Illumination Entertainment, Len, Mm -hmm. Illumination Entertainment, the folks who do the Despicable Me, Minions, you know, all those movies, Mm -hmm. they can deliver a film that makes almost a billion dollars for just $71 million on average. Okay. So 14 to 1 uh, ratio. Okay. Okay. Pixar, there was this run of films that they did over the past five years where every single film cost that studio $200 million to make. Wow. Don't get me wrong. It's Pixar. They're arguably I'm- the best at what they do. But how did we get to this price point? And so there's recently been pressure 
from management to the effect of, look, we have to start to rein this in. In fact, that's what's kind of interesting about Cars 3 is that this is the first film in a while that was produced for under $200 million. Mind you, it's $175 million, but it's still, it's a cost savings. And supposedly going forward, yes, we make great movies, but can we make more cost-effective movies? And right now, face it, Pixar isn't alone in this marketplace between Blue Sky, Illumination, Sony, and even reconstituted DreamWorks. It has a lot more competition, let alone, you know, competition it's getting from Disney. Frozen, I mean, or, yeah. Yeah, or, or for that matter, Zootopia, a billion-dollar earners. Pixar is in the middle of trying to streamline and become that much more efficient at a time when the company is gearing up to put it everywhere. Well, the other thing, too, about, about cheaper movies is they're faster movies, right? Because you time is money. So they can, they can iterate faster, too. It's so funny you say that because when I was interviewing Brian Fee earlier this year for his work on Cars 3, he was talking about he literally told the team, this movie is 90 minutes long. He came close. You know, they, the, what tripped him up, it was like, oh, crap, the credits. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, with all the people working on these, you've got, uh, you've got 10 minutes of credits. That's right. I watched the credits for uh, Partially Caribbean 5. It's basically you've got seven actors and a technology team of 2,000. There we go. Virtually every movie, every movie made these days. Yeah, so. Anyway. I think at this point you could cut the credit sequence from each of the Pirates movies and just lay them into it, and then that would be an hour long. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, that's probably more Pixar than anybody can take at this point. But what a good show. Good. And we have uh, lots of stuff to look forward to on it. Yep. So. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and your local movie theater wall. And rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. Don't forget we are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.